We've been studying the book of James. I reminded you all through these weeks that James was the half-brother of Jesus who did not believe on Jesus until after Jesus did what he said he was coming to do. He died and rose again. And uh, then all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, James became a believer and then a vocal leader. James, uh, was after he believed on Jesus, James became a leader eventually in the local church in Jerusalem. The church he pastored in Jerusalem would have been full of Jewish converts to believers in, in Jesus, converts to Christianity. And James led locally in Jerusalem, but then James later wrote a letter, and that letter was written to, uh, to the Jewish people who believed on Jesus that were living all over the surrounding countries and cities all over the Asia Minor area. And he wrote to them uh, so he could kind of pastor them from a distance or at least speak into their lives as they followed Jesus. So we've been studying that for weeks and weeks. Now you could go back and find out more of that story if you want to. But uh, we're starting chapter 4 today. We're going to take a big chunk out of chapter 4, the first 10 verses today. Uh, But before we get into that, I want to remind you of something that I say often that deserves repeating in case anyone doesn't remember this because it helps you put the Bible together. That when you study um, uh, the Bible and you see chapters and verses, the people that God used and inspired to write the scriptures did not write chapters and verse numbers in their writings. Like James wrote this letter. He wasn't sitting there saying uh, chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 4. He just wrote a letter. The reason there are chapters and verses in the letter is because those of us Later on, people said if we want to study what he wrote, it's easier to reference parts of that letter by chapter and verse. So that's been our benefit. And the reason I remind you of that is because uh, we start chapter 4, it would be easy to almost think that somehow we are removed from chapter 3's topic and we're changing topics. And the truth is we're not. Oftentimes the topic kind of blends over from one chapter to the next. In fact, interestingly... Next week, in the middle of chapter 4, we kind of change topics. But today, at the beginning of chapter 4, it kind of goes in unison with what we saw last week. So I want to just do a quick reminder of how chapter 3 ended so that you know what James is talking about in chapter number 4. So last week, if you were with us, here's a quick recap. James said we need to be careful not to have a spiritual facade that's not real. A lot of people know how to play the church game. We've been doing it for decades sometimes. We know how to play the church game. We sound spiritual. We know how to look, dress, talk the right lingo. But oftentimes, behind the facade of our stained glass masquerade, what's going on in here is something that's more ominous. It's bickering and it's fighting and it's selfish and all these things that are not healthy. And James says the inside, the, that stuff right there, is the real us, and if we can try to hide behind a spiritual facade or put a God label over all we do to justify our bad behavior, what's going to happen is we're going to hurt ourselves because we're not getting the honest help we need, and we're going to hurt others with our pretend, and and, and it's not good for anybody. So James says deal with the inside first, and let's be real. And so he talked about two big issues last week particularly. If you were with us, you heard this over and over because James repeats it like three times each. James says, watch out for jealousy and selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is that part of us where ambition is not bad. Ambition is when we want to do, improve things, make the world a better place. But selfish ambition is when I want to get ahead myself. 
I want to get ahead financially. I want to get ahead in, at work and in, in that position. And I want that title. And I want my way in everything. Selfish ambition. And when we are selfishly ambitious, we'll not only do wrong to others along the way because we've made it into something it shouldn't be, but we, we become jealous when others actually get the opportunities. And that jealousy, James said, turns to bitterness. And that bitterness, of course, it leads to all sorts of things, anger issues. Some people are angry all the time. Why are you angry all the time? And it shouldn't be that way. And those sins right there are not church sins. Those are human sins. All humans struggle with these things. But what James is saying is this. James is saying that when we follow Jesus, we ought to be better. Religious people, it, humans do these things wrong. But when religious people do these things wrong, in the name of God, it's really bad. So, so he's saying, look, let's do better. And that's why it's nothing sadder than seeing a people in church. Some of people, some people, other people in the world today, their entire church experience for all of their life has been, it's been a small seasons of peace, continuous, continual seasons of being upset about everything. Because we're, we get so selfishly ambitious and jealous and, 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 and we treat every part of our life like it's a subdivision meeting to fight for control on the block or something weird, you know? And so it's like, hey, James is like, that's not, that's not, don't hide behind a spiritual facade and have bad stuff going on in here. Deal with this. That's a little review. And again, chapter four begins, and James is going to move from identifying the problem to talking about the solution today. So the first 10 verses of James 4, James discusses solution. Let's get right into it. Ready? Verse one. He says, what is causing the quarrels and the fights among you. What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? He says, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to answer your, the question I'm asking you with a question that gives the answer. He says, don't they come, don't your quarrels, don't your fights, don't they come from the evil desires that are at war within you? In other words, if you remember last week when he mentions our selfishness and our jealousies, he says that when those things exist, there's disorder and there's evil of every kind. And what happens is we have evil desires at war within us. In other words, what's going on is this. The epitome of evil is when we're trying to get ahead of ourselves at the expense of other people because the most important thing is I get my way. And we fight and quarrel. He goes on in verse 2 and says this. You want what you don't have. That's really the problem for all of us, right? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. He says, you're jealous. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. So he mentions the jealousy again and the selfishness, I want what I don't have, and the jealousy, they have what I don't have. And he mentions killing and scheming, and some of us would say, well, James, that seems a bit hyperbolous. I've never killed anybody. But James said, no, you don't understand. When you want what you don't have so bad, what you might do is you might just undermine people. You might kill the reputation. You might kill their, the respect other people hold for them. You might tear them down. You might knock them down a few notches so you can get their position, get their opportunity. If you're jealous of what they have, you might want to tear them down so that they at least are on your level because you're jealous of what they have that you don't have. And James says that when we are driven by these selfish ambitions and these jealousies, we will scheme will aggressively or passive-aggressively tear down and kill things and others and fight and, and do what we have to do to get our way and take it from others and get it for ourselves if we can because of what we're driven by. And look, that's, that's the whole, that's every problem in a home, in a marriage, in a family, in a, in a job, in a community, in a church, anywhere. 
is we want something. In fact, that's a great statement. You want what you don't have. I have a pastor friend who says he's done this all his life at home. He says that years ago when he'd see family drama in their house and he caught himself in the middle of it, he would stop and he would say something. He'd say, you know what the problem is here? He would say to his family or whoever's fighting, you know what the problem is here? He would say, I'm not getting what I want. Which you'd be like, that's a pretty brutally honest admission right there. Like, I'm not getting what I want? That's, that's a pretty honest admission. Like, who says that? We don't say, those are the words you don't say out loud. You know, you, 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 you kind of spin it to where it sounds better. You don't admit that your whole problem is that you're not getting what you want. But he would say that to kind of say, that's my problem. And eventually his family started to say, well, yeah, that's true. I'm, that's my problem too. I'm not getting what I want. And eventually they'd roll their eyes whenever he'd bring it up. I know, I know. But after a while, they began to lead, take the lead. And they began to solve their problems when the first person would be humble enough to say, you know the problem is here? I'm upset because I'm not getting what I want. That's good advice. Because every problem you have, the problem you have with your wife and your husband, your children, your parents, your coworkers, your, your neighborhood, your, job, your church, everything. I'm not getting, that's what we have. Every, every angle of every fight. What, what do we want? Maybe we want our way. Maybe we want to do something that they, someone else doesn't want to do, but we want to do it. Or we don't want to do something they do want to do. Or, or we just want respect. Or feel loved. Or understood. But somehow, when we're fighting, for every single one of us, the problem is that we aren't getting what we want. If we could write that statement down and remember it, that would really be like a, a big aha moment, wouldn't it, along the way? It, it, even if you didn't admit it out loud, if you're just driving in your car and you're just angry at the world, Arr! you know why I'm angry right now? Because I'm not getting what I want, right? I mean, that's what it is. I'm not getting, I, I want to get down the road faster and this person's in front of me right here. I'm not getting what I want. Uh, I, I'm you know, upset with the family because this, I'm not getting what I want. Whatever it is, that's the issue. And identifying that's what James is saying to do. Start there. And then James is going to say, once we identify this, we can now address what to do about it. And he's going to give us some solutions, but it's not going to be what it sounds like at first. First thing he says is this in verse 2. He says, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. He says, in the middle of chasing the things that you're after, God's become a byword. You either have totally cut him out of your life or he's there in some token level because somehow you're connected to him still in some ways. And you kind of want him there in the sense that you kind of want divine blessing over everything. So he's kind of good to have in the back corner over there. But you really have kind of just moved into living your life your way for your things. And he says, you forgot God. You don't have what you want because you, you forgot to just turn to God and ask God for it. To which someone might say, oh, that's it? I'm not getting what I want in my marriage, so if I ask God, he'll straighten my wife out, my husband out, my kids out, my parents out, my coworkers out. My, if I, I don't have my Lamborghini yet, so if I just ask God for it, my Lambo will be in the driveway tomorrow. Um, I, that's, that's it. I just got to ask God. I, I'll get that promotion instead of that jerk at my job. That's it. Okay, I'll play that game. And then James says something else that kind of throws some perspective on that statement. Verse 3, he says, And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. 
You only want what will give you pleasure. I can almost hear the person right now saying, oh, I see, James, nice try. You did the old bait and switch, the old Jesus juke on me. The old bait and switch right there. Way to go, I see. You say, I don't have what I want, so come to God. So I come to God, and then he's like, you still can't have it because you want the wrong things. That was a trick to get me to God. It was a trap. I don't want to come to God unless he's going to, look, Okay, fine. I'll come to God. I, I'm, I'm busy living my life, getting what I want, trying to achieve the things I want to achieve. Fine, James. I'll come to God if I can rub the belly, if I can rub the bottle, and the genie will come out and give me my three wishes. I'll pull the God lever if answers to, answer to prayer candies come pouring out of the machine. I'll come to God. But if, if you're saying come to God and he's not going to respond my way when I pull the lever or give me what I ask for with my three wishes— he wants to actually try and work in my life and lead me and do something. That's what I don't want with God. And James says, I know. You want what you want, and I want what I don't have. And I'm not getting what I want. And he says, come to God. Well, I get what I want? See, I'm, I'm so tired of this God thing, James, Arlen, God. I'm tired of this thing. Like, can you just pony up the dough, just give me what I need, and if, if, if you just want something else from me, just that's my problem with you. You want something from me. I just leave me alone to live my life unless I need something. And then if you can't do that, what good are you? We would never say that because that sounds ridiculous. But a lot of times we operate in a space that almost treats God like he's that token prosperity gospel person, that he's good enough to make my life better, or he's not really much good at all. And he's just going to go blah, blah, blah. And I just don't need that. And God's like, no, I actually got something good for you if you listen. And James is trying to point that out. He's saying what God is saying. Here's what God's saying to you. God is saying you want what you want more than you want me. You want what you want more than you want me. And we're like, well, yeah. I mean, again, we wouldn't say this out loud, but in our hearts, we're like, duh, yeah. Like, I, I want what I want. If you can give me what I want, then we're okay. But you, ah, it's kind of a drag, God. And, and, and what God is saying to us is we want what we think is best. We want the good things. But what God offers us is really what's best. That's the struggle we have, is believing that what we think is best is really what's best. And all of us, if you've been any age at all, if you're older than, old enough to have made decisions on your own, we all know what it's like to think we know what's best, and then a little while later in life look back and say, whoops, I was wrong. Glad that didn't work out the way I wanted it to, or I wish I wouldn't have got what I wanted then, or whatever it may be. But, but somehow we, with God, we still think, that now I know what's best. And sometimes when, when that's, it's not working out and we're fighting for it to work out our way and we push God away, God is like, look, come to me. Will you give it to me? God's like, well, we'll talk about it. See, that's the problem. You want to talk about it. I have no time for that. God's like, see, you want what you want more than you want me. And I want to, I want to do something here and I want what's best. And you want what's best too. You just don't trust me. That's the problem. It's really a trust issue. You don't trust me, God says. Because if I can get this conversation going. Maybe we can figure out what's really best and you'll be happiest when we're all said and done. Now James is, I'm, I'm being nice, James is preaching. James in this letter, he's like, I mean the pen is on fire when he's writing this stuff. He is like, he's got his finger on the problem. He's preaching hard. And if you want to see James get really pointed, don't miss verse four. He says, you adulterers. Like, he's not even pulling any punches right now. You adulterers, he says, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, make yourself an enemy of God. Now, 
I have to pause here. For some of you, you can take that at face value. There, there's those of us who are raised in really strong uh, religious environments and fundamentalist environments where I've heard people use the phrase the world out of Scripture to, to misuse that word so many times. Like I've heard preachers in my life, the word the world is a reference to whatever in culture they don't like, just their preferences. Whatever they don't like is worldly, you know, whatever they feel, you know. Uh, I found out that one time as a teenager that pegging your jeans or having denim washed jeans is worldly and frosting the front of your hair is worldly and I mean, you can name the things that are worldly. Music any, any later than the 1960s was always worldly when I was growing up. I mean, you know, whatever it may be. So I understand that the definition of worldly has really been misused by a lot of people, and I get that. But, but look at the Bible context and understand what he's saying here. And most of the time the, word, the world's used in the Bible is referring to materialistic life, living for the here and now, living for this life, get my way. In fact, John, the apostle, once wrote, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. He says, he says um, if you do the love of God, it's not in you. He says, uh, the things that are in the world, the, love of, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's of the world. And he says, the world is passing away and the things in it are passing away. But there's something that's eternal and abides forever. So here's the point. Um, when we sit there and say, God, I don't really have time, unless I could pull the God lever and get what I want, otherwise stay out of my life, because I'm aiming my life to get what I want. And I'm selfish ambition, and I'm jealousies, and it's my life. i got to get the promotions in this world I want, and the titles, and the accolades, and the fame, and the wealth, and the money, and the prestige. And just It's my life, my world, my way. We're being worldly. We're being earthly. And James says that when, you, when you're not interested in God, and you pull and you say, I'm going to live, that's the first sin of all mankind. Read Genesis 3. The first, our first parents, the first sin was God saying, I made you for a relationship with me. And they're like, yeah, but I want this. And we've been doing it our whole lives. And James is like, when you do that, he, I love what he says at the end, you've made yourself an enemy of God. In other words, God's not the one who's being hostile. You've made yourself an enemy of God. You've put yourself at odds with God. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's like what he's saying is this. God hasn't moved. You've walked away. Look, some of you have been in this situation. I know I've experienced this as a pastor, and we're all guilty of this too. We all know people who, they walk away from your life, they walk away from you, and then they're mad at you because you're so far apart. Like, they're mad at you for not chasing them. If you cared about me, you'd chase me. Well, if you cared, you wouldn't walk away. I don't know. I mean, and so, you know, you're like, I'm still here. You left, and I'm the bad guy now. And, and, and I understand that tension, but, but that's what James is saying. James is saying we make ourselves at odds with God. We walk away. And God's like, hey, why? Because it's my life, and I'm living for this, my kingdom, this world, what I want. God's like, come to me. Will you give me what I want? He's like, oh, we'll talk about it. See, I don't want that. I want this. We're at odds with God, and James is like, you don't have to be. But you're making yourself that. He's never moved. We just felt like we found something better, so we've walked away. In fact, James says this in verse 5. This is so good. Do you think the Scriptures have no meaning? They, the Scriptures, they say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. Hey, God is passionate. Like, if you have this idea that God's this old geezer in the sky, hey, what's up? Oh, don't know where I placed the pipe. You know, hey, he's passionate. He's passionate. And what he's passionate for is you. 
that the spirit he's placed within us will be faithful to him. Remember the last verse he says, we're adulterers? He's like, no one wants to have someone who, who just says, eh, I'm, I kind of want you sometimes, but I, I, got, I, I want this other girl too, you know? He's like, hey, I made you for a relationship with me. God created us for a relationship with him, to be in community. And he's passionate that we have that relationship, that we're faithful to him. And when he sees us saying, God, just stay away, stay close enough so I can claim your name for some prosperity idea of, of the gospel and pull the lever when I need something, but just leave me alone so I can do it my way. God's like, I didn't make you for that. I made you for me. And I'm passionate for us to be us again. In fact, he uses the illustration of adultery, but really it's a good illustration of parent, a parent-child relationship. Um, if, if, if you've ever experienced this, hopefully most of us haven't, but if maybe someone has this horrible story, but picture you know, or maybe you were this person and, you know, you hopefully made it right as you got older. But anyhow, picture a child who becomes a teenager or a young adult or whatever who looks at my, my mom and dad and says, just, I don't really care. You just, I, I want to be nice. I want you to, to like me and be for me, but I just think you're full of stupidity. And I really, what I want is, you know, what can you can give me? Can you help me? Can you provide for me? I could use some provision. I, I need you on some level, but I don't really want to listen to anything you have to say because uh, it's just, you just don't know anything. But I, but I need what I need and I want what I want, but I don't really want you. And, you know, so can you help when I need help? And can you, you know, help me when I need, but, but, but blah, 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 just, just, uh, just go away. And see, that's always hurtful if that ever happened to you. If you've been that child, hopefully, as we got older, we're like, what was I doing? And if we were that, if that outside of that, hopefully we're like, whoa, that doesn't feel good, but what do I do? Here's my point. God is over there saying, that's all of us to our Heavenly Father. He's like, I made you, I love you. We're like, God, thank you. I want you to stay kind of in my picture, God, enough to make me feel good, to give me what I ask for, to provide for me where I can't provide for myself. Do that, but I just... You don't know. You're out of touch. And I just, we're just, you know, we're, I'm just smarter than that, okay? I've, I've, I'm awakened to better ideas, God, than you. So just stay there. And I'm over here. But if I need you, I'll come. And if you can't help, then what good are you anyhow? It's my life. And God's like, I made you for us. We're like, okay, shh, stop talking. Now, how do I get ahead? How do I get ahead in my job? How do I get ahead with people? How do I fight these battles? And we're fighting. We're at war. We're quarreling. We're at strife. We're scheming. Why? Because we've lived a worldly life. And God's over there saying, you, me, you, let's get together. There's a better way. Hmm. God's passionate. He's passionate for that relationship. But he's also gracious. Verse 6. He gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. You might think that God changes gears mid-sandwich. This is not God doing a sandwich method here. Grace at the beginning, grace at the end, opposition in the middle. That whole verse is grace. God gives grace generously. One of the ways God gives grace is he opposes the proud. That's one of God's graces. When we get proud and we're fighting, we're saying, you know, back off, God, back off others, and I'm going to scheme, and I'm going to be passive-aggressive here, and plain aggressive right there, and get ahead and kill and scheme and get, get my way, live my life, and it's, it's my world, my kingdom, my everything. 
We're proud and puffed up and it's full of selfish ambition and jealousy. God, everyone opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. One of the best things God ever does by grace, one of, the kindest, one, of the, one of God's kindnesses by grace to us is he opposes our pride. One of the kindest things God can ever do for you and me is let us run into a brick wall when we're being full of ourselves, right? Can we, be, can we agree with that? Like sometimes the, the grace of God lets me run into a brick wall before I run off the edge of a cliff. I have a friend growing up who used to pray a prayer. He used to say, God, if I'm being a stubborn old mule making dumb choices, Take a two-by-four to my head if necessary. It would be a kindness from you. Now, I might seem like a harsh prayer, but what he was saying is, stop me from going off the edge of a cliff. Like, seriously, your grace, oppose, oppose that. And God says, I'm, I'm a gracious God. And when you're doing the things that hurt you and hurt others, and I oppose the pride. You puff up, because I can puff up too. But I have grace to the humble. And so James says in verse number seven, he says, so, because of that, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Isn't that good? Resist the devil. Hey, when the enemy comes and whispers in your ear, hey, it's your life. Do what's best for you. Look out for number one. You know, you deserve better. You do you, boo-boo. I mean, you know, when he's over there, when he's over there whispering in your ear, hey, he just says, to say, listen, get behind me, Satan. I've, I've lived and I've fought and I've fought to get my way and live my life for me as long as I've lived for the things of this world and my goals and my aspirations and my dreams. I've pushed God aside. I've fought with others. I've been proud. Get behind me, Satan. I'm going to humble myself before God. When we humble ourselves before God, things change. By the way, notice the word humble yourself. Here's the thing about life that all of us have probably experienced. And if you haven't, Hang on tight. When we exalt ourselves, we get humbled in life. When we puff ourselves up, we tend to get humbled. And when we humble ourselves, we tend to get exalted. Jesus said those words, by the way. That's quoting him. So we can, we can let life and others humble us along the way and God humble us sometimes if we're full of pride. Or James says, here's a better idea, humble yourself. It works better that way. It works better that way. It works better if I'm correcting myself along the way instead of having to wait for everyone else to do it and getting mad at them for it. If I'm letting go of the pride and the selfishness that it stirs in me, I have to humble myself. Whew. James says, humble yourself before God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. And then he says something in verse 8 that I don't, don't want to rush past. He says, come close to God. And God will come close to you. I want to come back to that part of, the, part of the verse here. But let me finish it first. He says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Wash your hands. In other words, so far I've been saying, God, just stay in your lane. If I want you, you're there. Provide for me. But I don't really want to listen to you. I know better. And I'm over here doing my thing my way. And, and James is saying, meanwhile, you're selfishly ambitious, you're jealous, you're scheming, you're fighting, you're taking advantage, you're fighting a dog-eat-dog world, survival of the fittest world. James says, you got blood on your hands. You, you've, you've mistreated people, you've wronged people in your quest for your way. You know, wash your hands, sinners. All of us, wash your hands. Purify your hearts. 
for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. You're, you're kind of half in the whole God in case he can benefit me game, half into the whole, it's my life, God, how dare you. And I believe in a version of you that benefits me, but not a version that does not accommodate my goals and my dreams of my own life. And, and, and James is like, stop that. Wash your hands, purify your hearts, and come to God. Come close to God, he says, and God will come close to you. And you know what's interesting about that? I said earlier, this is interesting to me. Earlier I said that when we, we make ourselves at odds with God because we walk away. God didn't move. We walk away. Here's the interesting thing. But when we come back, God moves. We walk away and God's still there. But when we come back, God moves. Like God's not sitting there saying, uh-huh, took a long, long detour from me. How's that working out for you? By the way, how is that working out for you and me? It never works out very well for us when we go away from God, does it? When we live our lives for selfish ambition, when we, when we get corrupted, it never works out very well. It doesn't pay off. God isn't sitting there saying, how's it working out for you? Oh, coming back now, are you? Well, you've been, you, do, you went 50 miles away, so <laughs> it'll be a while before you make it back here, but I'm waiting 50 miles back. Let's keep going. Tick tock, tick tock. That's what, by the way, that's a watch. Back in the old days, we used to have watches on our hands. We look at the time right there, like a sundial. It's amazing. Anyhow, he's like, oh, God's not over there saying, uh-huh. No, when we, we might walk a long ways from God, but when we turn around and we come close to God, he comes close to us. And you know what's really cool about that? It's a lot shorter trip to get back to God no matter how far we've walked. Because when we start coming back to him, he comes to meet us. And here's the cool part. God takes bigger steps than we do. He just does. You know my favorite, one of my favorite Bible stories is the story of the prodigal son. I love that story. I don't have time to tell you the whole story because we know that and there's just no time for it. The prodigal son's a pretty awesome story for lots of reasons. For example, it's the story of a young man who, his two brothers, they had a dad. The younger brother grew up. He just wanted, he just stayed at home because he needed to, but he didn't care for dad a hoot. He realized that he had an inheritance coming if dad would just go ahead and die. But his dad wouldn't die. Like his dad was like doing push-ups and squats and Pilates and all sorts of stuff. And his dad was in great shape. He's like, man, my dad's going to never die. I'll get my inheritance. I just want to bail out of this joint. So finally, he just says enough guts to say, dad, really, honestly, you just won't go dying on me now. So if you could just like pay up my inheritance so I can get someday, we can pretend you're dead. I can get out of here and never see you again. And the dad could have said whatever, but his dad in his kindness says, okay, fine, here. Gave the boys inheritance. And he hits the road, he's like, see you, pops. And he's gone. And it's an amazing story because as he's gone, the, the dad lets him go. He doesn't chase him. The son's gone. He walked away, put himself at odds. He was gone. Probably at odds long before that, but this was the final, because he knew better. He had it figured out. Somewhere along the lines in his new life, his money's all gone. His friends are all gone. He's got nothing to show for it. He's desperate enough to finally turn to a job serving pigs their food and for a farmer. It's giving him a little bit of something. And he's so desperate for hunger that he's willing to eat the pig's food. And he has an aha moment of humility where he says, you know, back at home, my idiot dad, doesn't seem so stupid anymore, he, he has servants. He has servants that work for him who get paid better than I'm getting paid to fill these pigs. 
Maybe if I go back to dad, and I, I know I can't be like family gangs, I've kind of burned that bridge, when, wishing them dead. But I can at least be a, maybe he'll be soft enough in his heart to me since he, you know, knew me my whole life. He'll give me a job as a servant because his servants have it better than this. So he's got this whole approach. He, he humbly comes back with his tablet between his legs, comes back home, ready to give dad the speech. I just want to come home and work for you and just help me out. I'm desperate. The father, the Bible says the father, and it's a picture of God. Don't miss it now. This is, a, this is a picture of God. The father sees him from a far way off coming back. The father, when the, when the son left, he never chased after him. He didn't go after him everywhere he went and said, hey, stop, 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 stop. He just let him go. Grieved, I don't know. Prayed, cried, whatever. But when the son was coming back and the father saw him from a far way off, here's what the father didn't do. He didn't say, oh, there he comes. <laughs> I'm going to stand here so you can see me with my arms crossed and wait. Mm -hmm. The father didn't sit there and say, hey, Alfred, cup of coffee, please. Guys, get the key. Let's get in the porch. Let's hear this. Let's hear this one. Everyone get out here. Have a seat. Let's wait. The son walked away and the father let him. But when he came back home and he saw him a far way off, he ran from the porch. The Bible says he ran and ran to meet his son, threw his arms around him and said, yes. And the son's like, dude, I don't deserve to be here. He's like, shut up, listen. Who cares? You were dead and you're alive again. You were lost and you're found. You're here. He's like, man, it's party time. And that's what James is saying. James is saying, listen, you may have walked away from God. You may have made yourself an enemy of God. You may have gone far from him. But you come close to God and he is running to, listen, he takes bigger steps than you. God will come close to you. He, he is passionate. He made you for a relationship with him. He loves you. Come close to God. He will come close to you. That's good news. And then in verse 9, he says this, let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Now that might sound like a real downer verse, but if you don't know what that verse is talking about, let me encourage you to experience it. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful verse. It's a powerful verse. What he's saying is this. Look, everyone wants life to be one big party all the time and just laugh. And, but sometimes we're trying to laugh and, and drown and party our, so we can keep the noise going and not stop to think about what's really going on. But when we can stop and come to God with repentance. In other words, we're not coming to God and say, okay, Okay, made a mess of things, God. Okay, let's get this fixed. Sorry, not sorry, but sorry. Fix my problems because that's what I gotta say. When we come back to God with repentance, when we come to God and say, God, I was, I was an idiot. Has anyone here besides me ever been an idiot with your life? All right. This is my, my personal testimony, nobody else's, right? Like, God, I've been an idiot. Yeah, I did it my way. It made a great song and a lousy lifestyle. At some point, God, I kind of ignored you and mistreated people and did what I had to do for me and made it all about me. And I wasn't happy the whole way. And it either, if it worked out, it didn't make me fulfilled. And if it didn't work out, it frustrated me. And God, I'm real, I'm, wisdom has set in. We come to God not with a sorry, not sorry mentality, but with repentance, with tears and sorrow and deep grief and sadness. And come to God. That's not a bad thing. Look, you can laugh your way and party your way and turn the stereo up loud all you want to to drown out what's really going on. But until you've done this, you don't know. Until you've ever come to a spot where you've stopped and humbled yourself before God and surrendered. 
you don't understand how absolutely powerful that is. It is, there's a reason that when they refer to surrender, they call it sweet surrender. When you let go. When you stop gripping a hold of what you think you want, angry, and you let go. The tears will flow. And it will be beautiful. It'll be beautiful. It's that simple. It's that easy. But it's found on the other side of letting go. So in the end, let me say it this way here as we get ready to wrap up. Coming to God is not about getting what we want. Coming to God, maybe that's what it is for us, but that's not what it's really at the core. James says, come to God. You you don't have because you haven't asked God, but then when you do ask God, you're asking wrong. Coming to God is not about getting what we want. It is about getting what he knows is best. And that's the rub sometimes, but it's a trust issue. It's about getting what he knows is best. And by the way, which is what we really want anyway? Let's be honest. The reason I do what I do, the reason I ignore people in my life, my God, anybody, the reason I do it my way is because I think I know what's best. And sometimes I figured out for a while, whoops, I was wrong, but then sometimes I do it again. But I want what's best. But coming to God is coming to God in a spot where we say, God, I have faith. I believe that you know what's best and that you want what's best. Isn't that a good moment when you trust God that God knows you best and loves you still? He knows you best and loves you most. God knows you better than you know yourself and God knows what's best for you more than you know for yourself. And we come to God and say, God, I'm just trying to get what I want. I'm not getting what I want. But God... Along the way, I've lost our relationship. I want to come to you because I want to believe that you know what's best. And that's really what I want in the end. All the things we chase, all the things we chase, whether it's money, position, opportunity, some sense of freedom, it's all to bring us peace and joy and happiness. Some of us have experienced chasing those things and they didn't bring us peace and joy and happiness in the end. We actually got them and they didn't bring us what we wanted. Or we can't even get them, they're elusive. But what if... If we're living for the things that we think will bring us peace and joy and happiness, what if we just came to God and in a different way he gave us peace and joy and happiness? Isn't that what we really want? Might take some repentance. Might take some humbling ourselves. In fact, as we close today, sometimes we give you a summary statement at the end of a sermon, a closing statement. But we couldn't do better than James because James closes this topic out the best way with a statement that you ought to write down and put it on your refrigerator or your dashboard of your car or your computer screen if you're techie. James says in verse 10, to close it all off, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Why am I so resistant and why are you and I so resistant to do that? Why do I insist on knowing what's best and trusting me and fighting hard and having my own aspirations and being selfishly ambitious, jealous, bitter, angry all the time. Why? Humble ourselves. Humble myself. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up in honor. 
If I don't humble myself, life probably will humble me. But when we choose to humble ourselves, is where it gets good. Because when we humble ourselves before the Lord, he comes alongside of us and he lifts us up. Don't miss that now. When we humble ourselves before God, he comes alongside of us and he lifts us up in honor. Because he loves you. Because he's passionate for you. Because he wants what's best. He wants you to be faithful to him. He wants you to trust him. Humble ourselves before the Lord. He will lift you up in honor. And that's a good place to stop for today. I'm going to switch gears next week. But I hope that today we will be, and all of us have been, the story of the prodigal son is a story of God and you and me. That all of us today will remember to come close to God and he will come close to us. Humble ourselves before him and let him lift us up. Repent, trust, be faithful, ask him, listen to him. There's a better way. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Those are words to live by.